You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. From 2 Corinthians 4, we'll be starting at verse 1 and going all the way to verse 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death, over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. Thank you, Tiana. How about we pray? Father, we thank you for the chance to study your word. Uh, we thank you for 2 Corinthians and all that we're learning from it. We ask that you might bless us as we study it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, recently I read the book Treasure Island with my son Tate. It's a very famous book, of course, by Robert Louis Stevenson, but I'd never actually read it. In fact, it turns out I still haven't read it because I only discovered the other day that I actually read an adaptation. So haven't read the official one. But either way, Tate and I loved this book. For, for one thing, it was really, really violent, which we really enjoyed. Uh, I'm not kidding. There seemed to be someone who died every page and there was these graphic pictures in there of blood splattering all over the place. And for boys like Tate and for me, uh, that's pretty exciting stuff. But of course, the main concept of the book is that there's some treasure. Turns out it's on an island and the whole quest is to find this treasure on this island and there's a map and X marks a spot and so on. And it's a very popular story because we love the idea of finding treasure, don't we? It's, it's, it's everywhere. 
It's in Indiana Jones. It's in The Hobbit, you know, the dragon sitting on this pile of gold. And before you judge Smorg, you know that you would be the same. If I told you that there was treasure buried out there in the yard, I'm sure you would go and look for the map and dig it up. In fact, maybe we should do that for our working bees in a few months' time. Just say there's some treasure there and we'll dig up the yard. But we all have this desire for treasure, don't we? And it's really the theme of today's passage as well. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul says that we have, that we have access to, that we possess a treasure, but we hold it in jars of clay. And today I want to look at this, to ask first of all what this treasure is and then ask how we should think about it, what we should do with it, and to suggest that we need to see the treasure, celebrate the treasure, and then show the treasure. Well, first of all, let's think about what is this treasure? What exactly is it? Well, the short answer is that it's the gospel. It's the good news that we can have life with God through Jesus Christ, which really means that it's a a long answer because life with an infinite God is an infinite blessing and an infinite miracle. See, humanity was made to live with God. That's this beautiful picture in Genesis of of God walking along in the garden with Adam. that's, That's the thought that we have. That's the treasure that humanity had at the beginning. But tragically, we lost this treasure. Adam and Eve turned away from God and so they they lost this. They were cast out from his presence and all humanity with them. And so we have lost what we were made to have. But here is the wonder of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God pursues those who've rejected him, offering himself afresh to us because of his mercy Jesus came to this earth to to restore us to life with God. Jesus took on our sin, paid for it, died for it, and then rose again to begin this new life for us. But, But what do we mean exactly by living with God? Well, for a start, it means that we have a relationship with the Trinity. As Christians, we believe that there's one God, but that God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is our priest and he's the one who comes between us and God and so reconciles us to God. And then because of Jesus, God has become our Father who looks after us and protects us. And then the Christian has the Spirit of God living within them, God himself inside us, working to bring change and transformation. And this process of change and transformation will ultimately lead to us being made like God. That's what Paul said last week. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, we were made in God's image in the beginning, made in his likeness. Sin has distorted and disrupted that. But by God's grace, that's changing. We've been given a new life and we start to become like him. And the more we spend time with him, the more we become like him until one day we'll look just like him. I read something beautiful the other day. It was from a preacher picking up uh, on this concept and he says, a day is coming when you will stand before the throne of God and the angels will whisper together and say, oh, how like Christ is that person? That's your destiny if you're one of God's people. That's the treasure that you have. Life with God now and forever. Now, do you see this? Do you see the treasure of the gospel, life with God through Jesus? You see, not everyone does. Paul proclaims the good news of Jesus 
the gospel, but he's noticed that there's different responses. Some people embrace it, but others reject it. Just like last week, he talked about how uh, he carries the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. And for some people, they love that. It's the fragrance of life, but for others, it's a fragrance of death. And in the same way, there's this treasure and some people love it and they embrace it, they cherish it, but others, it's veiled to them, verse 3. They can't see it. They're blind to it. Uh, maybe it's a little bit like with my wife and I. When, we, when we're on holidays and we go shopping, we go and look for our own treasure, right? We look for the things that we love, but we have very different ideas about what that treasure might be. I love bookshops and hunting down secondhand books about cricket from the 1970s or something random like that. The kinds of things that Ivana just has no interest in at all. Like she cannot see. It is veiled to her that this is a treasure. <laughs> Ivana, meanwhile, loves to go to knick-knack shops, you know, with like tea towels and baskets and ornaments. And I literally feel nauseous with boredom when I go into these places. Like the treasure of the chicken tea towel is unveiled to that. I cannot see it. It's the same thing here with the treasure of God. The unbeliever, the non-Christian, is blind to the treasure that is here. They don't value it. They just can't see it. They're blind to it. And it's not just a matter of preference. Paul actually says it's a spiritual issue. In their case, he says, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world is the devil. He's the enemy of God and he's the enemy of us. The Apostle Peter calls him the adversary, our adversary. And he comes to steal and kill and destroy. So God brings life and light. And so the devil seeks to disrupt and sabotage that. He knows that there is life in God. And so he will seek to keep us from God. He will seek to block us, block our way. And he'll use all manner of strategies to do this. His favourite technique, I think, is to tell us that we can't trust the goodness of God, that he's always taking rather than giving to us. Sometimes he tells people that we don't need Jesus, that we can get to God ourselves. Or perhaps he says that even if Jesus is a treasure, it's not worth all the trouble around it. God's people end up getting persecuted, so, so why bother with it? Or perhaps he just offers us different treasure, money, sex, fame, power, pleasure, and convinces us that the treasure of God is pale by comparison. So the devil then works to blind the minds of people so that they cannot see the treasure of God. But this spiritual blindness can be broken down, but only by God. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Really what Paul is doing here is he's taking us back to the very beginning of the world. Genesis 1, we're told that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But then God spoke. God said, let there be light and there was light. And in that moment, God started creation. He made it happen, this miraculous thing. There was darkness, but then God broke into that. He shone light into the darkness because that's what God has the power to do. And Paul is saying that that same process, that same dynamic is a play whenever someone comes to faith. They are spiritually dark, 
but then the light shines into that darkness. As Warren Risby puts it, we are formless and void before God intervenes, forming and filling our lives. And so if you're a Christian, I want you to know that you are an echo, a fresh manifestation of God's creative power. The same power that brought something from nothing in the beginning brought something from nothing in your heart. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are witness to the spellbinding, lightning strike power of our creator God. And Paul could testify to this in his own life, of course. The story of his conversion is an incredible one. I mean, you often hear cool testimonies, but this has got to be one of the best. I'm sure you remember most of it, but it's worth reminding anyway. He was, of course, known as Saul, a Pharisee, one of the leaders of the Jewish community, trained in the Torah, the Jewish law, trained and committed to uphold it and sure God's people followed it closely. He saw himself as a very moral person, Philippians 4. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was zealous as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like he genuinely thought that he could earn his way to heaven. And so he was horrified by what Jesus taught. He hated the thought that he saw Jesus as a heretic, a blasphemer who claimed to be equal with God and then who threatened to undermine the law by saying that it wasn't sufficient for people to be saved. And so Paul tried to destroy the church that flourished after Jesus' ascension. He was there when Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, was stoned and we're told in Acts 1 that he approved of his execution. Then a couple of verses later, we we're told that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He's on the rampage. But in the midst of this, Jesus interrupts him. Acts 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Paul asked permission to go and round up more Christians in Damascus. But of course, on his way there, he encounters Jesus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. He's blinded. For several days he can't eat or drink, he can't see. And then this guy Ananias is sent and he tells him the gospel and immediately we're told something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised. This is the moment of his new creation. He was physically blind, but of course he was spiritually blind too. But then God stepped in and changed that miraculously. Scales fell from his eyes and from his heart. 2 Corinthians 3, when one turns to the Lord, Paul says, the veil is removed. So this, this thing that he literally experienced becomes a metaphor for what all God's people experience. Light shines in the darkness. The veil is lifted. They begin to see. So do you see it? Do you see the treasure of the gospel, life with God through Jesus Christ? For some people, this uh, awakening, this, this, this light shines very suddenly and dramatically, like Paul. For others, it's a growing awareness, a little bit like the sun rising slowly on a clear day. I think for me it was slow and then sudden. 
I grew up in a Christian family. I went to church, had a pretty uh, strong idea, clear idea of what a Christian was supposed to be like. I remember uh, being taught that a Christian was someone who hated sin. They were really against sin. And so whenever I sort of felt guilty, I, I tried to feel this kind of hatred for sin and I tried to engender it in my heart, but it was all just me doing it. It wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. I didn't actually feel that until God did that work. He created that feeling. He gave me a sense of conviction that I, I didn't want to sin. And then he pointed me to Jesus and what Jesus had done and forgiveness. Now, this took a long time, though, and, and then suddenly it all just made sense. I remember my pastor saying, look, Luke, you can't add to what Christ has done and you can't take away from it. And in that moment, it was like the sun just shone down into my heart and I saw the treasure of Jesus. So do you see it? And then secondly, do you celebrate it? Now, maybe that sounds like a, a strange thing to ask. I mean, this news is so good. Why wouldn't you celebrate it? It's a treasure. And yet, of course, it is a question worth asking because many people don't. Many pastors, many churches worry that the gospel can't stand on its own two feet. They worry that people won't accept it as it is, so they modify it to make it more attractive. They make try to make it more acceptable. That's what was happening in Corinth. Uh, as you might remember, we've seen that Corinth was a very self-reliant, very proud city where you, it was all about your own self-advancement and self-reliance. And in that context, the gospel that Paul proclaimed uh, seemed weak. As he says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He's speaking here about the two main demographics that he was preaching to. Uh, for the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. They, they, wanted the, they, they wanted to believe that they could earn their way to heaven. And for the Greeks, they were looking for something spectacular, something impressive. And so the idea that a God would step into this world and take on human flesh just didn't interest them at all. And so there were some in the church at Corinth who seemed to be trying to modify the gospel to reach these people, to reach the Jews. They, they speak more about the potential for human righteousness. And for the Greeks, they promise power and authority and glory. They, they modify the gospel. They tart it up to make it more attractive to people. And, of course, this temptation is still around for us today. Sometimes it's overt where people just flat out contradict the Bible or, or reinterpret it to try to repackage it. Often this happens when the gospel confronts the idols of our age, when it, it, it compels us to go against the culture. We don't, we don't want to do that. And so we try to change the gospel to fit with the ethos. One of the most obvious examples of this in our age is what preachers might say about sexuality. There's plenty of people out there, plenty of preachers who will tell you that God has no problem with sexual sin. You don't have to save sexual intimacy for marriage. Homosexual relationships are fine. But that's a contradiction of what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. That's God's clear message. Or consider the prosperity gospel. 
This is the idea that if you give to your church, God will bless you financially because this is his will for your life. As Joel Osteen of Lakewood Church in Texas puts it, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfil the destiny he has laid out for us. Now, leaving aside the very obvious fact that this is a scam to make the preacher richer, you know, give to us and God will bless you, that sounds a bit sus, it's a clear abuse of Scripture. God doesn't promise his people an easy life. In fact, he warns constantly about the dangers of wealth. 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I suspect that we would probably reject those kinds of overt abuses of Scripture, but we might still be vulnerable to something a little more subtle. How many times, for instance, do you wince when you have to confront people with the challenging aspects of the Bible, the exclusiveness of Christianity. You know, maybe you've got a friend you've been praying for. You eventually pluck up the courage to invite them to church. After a while they come, you're so excited, and then they come in and they hear me bang on about God's judgment. Like you must hate that, right? I know I feel uncomfortable saying it. And so it's tempting not to. It's tempting for all of us, isn't it, to, to just try and uh, avoid the difficult aspects of Christianity, try to get someone in, get them into the, the family, get them to sign on the dotted line, and, and then we'll deal with the other stuff later. We'll kind of back end that. But Paul rejects that. Verse 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says what God says. He tells the truth and is faithful to it. That means that he says the hard things, that we're all sinners, that there is hell, that there is judgment, that we, we need salvation. And then he says the good stuff, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And then having proclaimed this, having stated the truth openly, he leaves it with God. He hopes, of course, that people will respond in faith, but he understands that that doesn't always happen. And either way, he is committed to telling the truth because ultimately there's no point in anything else. Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have to come to faith purely by, by hearing what the truth is. So there's no point saying some other version, some edited version, because if someone believes that, then they're not actually believing the real truth. As Paul says, they're proclaiming another Jesus. I don't know Jesus, those who believe in another Jesus. We have to proclaim the real Jesus the real thing. And, of course, why wouldn't we? Because the real Jesus, the real message is so good. See, Paul doesn't just tell the truth because it's right to do that and because it's logical. He does it because he loves it. He celebrates it. The gospel holds out the promise of life with God, of seeing God, of becoming like him. And so Paul's not, not embarrassed by that. 
He understands that there is hard things to hear, but they're counterbalanced by the good things. Yes, he's willing to talk about sin because he wants people to see forgiveness. He wants people to know God's grace. And so if you truly believe that Jesus is this great truth, then why would you cover it up? And this is really why it's so important for us to see the treasure. If you truly see the treasure of the the message that we have, then you want to display it. And so the next time you're kind of tempted to modify the gospel, remind yourself of what the gospel is, the treasure of God. So we see the treasure of Christ and we celebrate it. And then thirdly and finally, we, we show it. We show this treasure in two ways, in our current weakness and in our future glory. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Our jars of clay were ubiquitous in the ancient world. They were everywhere and essentially worthless. They were used to carry water or olive oil, wine, grain. If you had a, a metal con- vessel, you could, you could uh, fix it, you could repair it. If you had a, a glass one, you could uh, melt down the stuff and reuse it in different ways. But uh, jars of clay, once they were broken, that was it. As Gary Miller puts it, they were really just basically ancient plastic bags. They, they had no real value. And Paul is likening us to that. He's saying, we have this treasure but we carry it in vessels of clay. We are these jars of clay. We have this glorious message, but God chooses to carry it in very humble and unimpressive messages, in people who are vulnerable and frequently uncertain, people who are imperfect and prone to sin and stumbling. People who are beset by trouble and affliction and discouragement and doubt, held back by physical weakness, emotional limitations, anything. And why does God choose to do this? Because in that, in these jars of clay, he manifests his glory even more profoundly. The fragility, the plainness of the jar makes the treasure appear even more precious. Now, we might not particularly like the sound of this. When I was at uni, I was part of this Christian group called Christian Union, and at our camps we would sing this song called May the Mind of Christ My Saviour. And it was all about the goodness of Christ manifested through us with these vessels showing him to the world around us. And there was this verse that stuck with me. It says, may his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win and may they forget the channel seeing only him. I've got to tell you, that line always irritated me. (laughs) I mean, I understood the theology. I'm just a vessel for God and his work. But if I'm honest, I didn't like it. Yes, I wanted people to see Jesus, but I also wanted them to see me. I did want him to get glory, but I wanted to share in that glory as well. And I wonder if more broadly we want God to get glory through our lives, but we'd love it to be through us looking glorious. You know, we'd love people to marvel at the transformation of our lives. We'd love people to think, wow, that person's so wise. 
Look at the sins that they've overcome. Look at their joy in tribulation. Now, God can do that. We'll see that in a minute. But God's glory is most often evident, not in our strength, but in our weakness. Not in our spiritual gifts, but in our inadequacies. Not when our lives are all put together, but when we are fragile and broken. God is most obvious when we are least obvious in our hardship and even in our sin. See, Paul writes in verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul lived an incredibly hard life. In chapter 11, he speaks about the catalogue of woes that he had, persecution, imprisonments, countless beatings, stoned almost to death. He speaks of the difficulties he faced, like hunger and thirst, hardship, the disasters, like being shipwrecked three times, cut adrift at sea, the disappointments of, of betrayal, the deceit of other people. And here he's telling us what that was like. But notice, in all of these words, all of these descriptions, there's a but. He was afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. At every point, when things looked terrible, when there seemed no hope, he discovered God. When he was weak, he saw God's strength. In all of these things, God came through. And really what he discovered was the true nature of the treasure that he held. Because of God, he could find hope in the darkness. He could find peace in the midst of conflict and anxiety. He could find joy in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5. And as he saw the treasure better and better, he was able to show it as well. So you just think about it. All of us want to avoid suffering, don't we? But we can't. We all face in some way. Everyone in this room is afflicted perhaps by sickness or exhaustion or discouragement or grief or betrayal or hurt from others, death, whatever it is. This is the inevitable reality of the human experience. We all face it and we all struggle with it. And so it's always amazing when you see someone in the midst of that and you see them holding on. You see the glory of God in their faith, in their perseverance, in their perspective, in their generosity. You see the treasure when they show it in their lives. We see God's glory through them and they see more of God's glory. See, this is actually why the prosperity gospel is so lame it promises treasure, but it actually takes away and denies the treasure that's actually already there. So if you believe the prosperity gospel, then you're told that any suffering that you experience is an intruder. You know, that you should be healthy and happy and rich and comfortable. Life should be awesome. And so when it's not, you assume that everything's wrong. In fact, you probably assume that it's your fault. You've been told that it's if you have faith, then all of these things will happen. You'll have the victorious Christian life. And so when those things aren't happening, you feel guilty. You feel like God is judging you or you're away from God in some way. He's not, he's frowning upon you. 
But actually, it's probably the opposite. Because in our suffering, God comes closer and we actually have the greatest treasure of all, his presence, his care. Tom Wright, uh, writing on this passage, reminds us of chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We looked at that at the time a few weeks ago and it was the most profoundly difficult moment of Paul's life. It felt like he was close to death. But in the midst of this, he says, this was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God. In the midst of his weakness, he found God's strength. He saw the treasure of God. And so Wright says, this passage is an enormous comfort to all those who are going through persecution, temptation, Suffering, bereavement, tragedy and sorrow of every kind. That's everyone in this room. He says, it feels as though you're being crushed. Of course it does. That's how it felt for Paul as well. But it may actually mean that you're living out the gospel. You're living out the gospel. You're discovering the true treasure that you hold. Yes, you're a jar of clay, but the treasure within you is extraordinary. So God works even in our hardship and he can even work in our sin. See, we all want to be godly, don't we? I hope so. <laughs> we want to be faithful. We want to be reliable. We want to be upright. God is a holy God. We want to be holy people. But, of course, we always, we often fall short of that, don't we? But the incredible thing is that God works even in these situations. I think about this a lot in relation to my kids. I want my kids to know the gospel, so I tell them the gospel all the time. I pray with them that they'll know God better, they'll know his love, they'll respond to that, and I hope that that has some impact. But you know what probably has the most impact? The times when I show them the gospel in my sin. You know, there's times where I just do the wrong thing. I get annoyed at them. I lose my temper perhaps. I, I'm short with them. I raise my voice. I'm, I'm grumpy. I'm distant. I'm critical. I'm, uh, I'm not fair. I'm not just with them. I don't give them what they should have. And when I feel this, I, I feel convicted about it. And so I'll often go and say sorry to them. Now, I hate having to do this. I hate having to say sorry for something that I've done that's wrong. But it's also really beautiful because I can show them that there is forgiveness, that I'm asking God to forgive me and he will do that. I get to show them the gospel in my sin. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we should sin lots and lots so that we can show more and more of that. I think God shows his glory only through repentance sin. But I do want you to see that God can work even through our failures. Yes, we're jars of clay, but we hold this treasure. And even in our sin, we display his glory, his goodness. Think about what Paul said. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He, he called himself the chief of sinners. And so his sin manifested God's glory. 2 Corinthians, I think, invites us to look again 
at the difficulties and the challenges of our lives and to see them with a different perspective. You see, we dread weakness. We, we resent suffering. But all through this book, Paul wants us to see that God can do something even in those trials. Yes, we're jars of clay, but he is a great treasure. And he wants us to both see it and to show it in our weakness, in our current weakness. But I also want you to see that he wants to show it in our future glory. See, I often talk about our weakness right now, and I think it's important to do that, but I also want us to see where we're headed. Yes, we're jars of clay, but one day we'll be something far more glorious. Verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul compares the inner and the outer self here. Uh, some people might assume that he's talking about the physical body and the uh, internal spirit. Uh, it was very popular in Greek culture and even now to, to imagine that the physical body was holding back the spirit. But that's not what Paul is saying it, in Christianity, the human body is so valuable that God took it on himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our perishable body will, will put on the imperishable, this mortal body will put on immortality. We have this glorious physical bodily future. So what he's talking about is actually something else. He's talking about our old self and our new self. Remember, he said that uh, when anyone comes to Christ, they are a new creation. And so the rest of your life is living into this new creation, becoming this new self. It happens more and more. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator, Colossians 3. Or last week, transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. I was explaining this to my son today. It's like we're transformers. You know, when they're changing and they're transforming. We, we, we take a while. We're more like... We're kind of in slow motion transforming, but it's happening. We're becoming more and more like the image of God. And one day it will be perfected. 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. This is what God is preparing for you and in you and with you you're going to become like Jesus. And he wants you to know this in the midst of your current weakness. He wants you to look to your future glory. He is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A weight of glory. It's, it's so profound, it's heavy. You're going to be blown to the ground by joy and wonder. That is your future. That's what God is going to do. And even in your weakness, every point of that weakness, he wants you to see the glory that comes because of it. The suffering is outweighed by the reward at the end. As we finish, let's finish with a C.S. Lewis quote. It's a long one. He says, he's talking about transformation and how when we come to faith, we kind of can understand why at the start of our Christian walk there's, there's a bit of change. Yeah, yeah, I, knew, I knew that I had to fix those things. But then it keeps happening and we're surprised. Why am I still having these difficulties? Why is the, the Christian walk not as easy as I thought it was? 
And he says it's because God is doing something profound. Imagine yourself a living house, he says. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts. It doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a nice little cottage, but he is building a palace. And if we let him, he will transform the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's the treasure that we have in Christ Life with him now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible treasure that you have for us. We ask, Lord, that we will see it, that we will see it in a profound and a beautiful way. If there's anyone here who doesn't yet see it, that they will see it tonight. And then, Lord, I ask that we will celebrate this treasure, that we will proclaim this treasure and share it with others. And then we ask that you will show the treasure through our life, in our weakness and in our glory. Lord, the things that we wish we didn't have, the things that we resent, the things that we feel like are unredeemable, the things that are holding us back, we ask that you will release them to show your glory, that you will work even through these things. The things that make us the jars of clay, may your glory be evident. May the greatness of the treasure shine through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.